0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free. Right now, join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Lama Tsomo has a truly fascinating story. She's one of the first American women to be ordained as a Tibetan Buddhist lama or spiritual teacher. Her birth name is Linda Pritzker. Uh, She's part of the famous Pritzker family, which built the Hyatt Hotel chain, Uh, but she has taken a very, very different path in her life, diving very deeply into Buddhism, spending months on retreat, actually learning to speak Tibetan, and now teaching all over the world. She's just written a book. It's called Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling, in which she tells her story and also details some of these Tibetan practices, which, to those of us in the West who are practicing either secular mindfulness or insight meditation will be new and different and extremely interesting. So, Lama Tzomo, thanks for being here.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Congratulations on your new book. Thanks. We were just discussing before the podcast started. I'm sort of embarrassed to admit I've only read uh, about uh, two-thirds of it because I ran out of time. Um, But it's really, really, really interesting. And, again, as somebody who's been trained in both (laughs) secular mindfulness and Insight meditation or Theravadan meditation. It's all of this stuff is new to me and just deeply, deeply fascinating. You do a really good job of explaining it in simple terms. Um, but before I get to that, let's start at the beginning. So, how did you go from being uh, a Pritzker to Lama Tsoma? How did that happen? How did that the pretty big shift happen?
1: Okay, so I don't think you mean about the names themselves. No. <laughs> um, so, I was just uh, really to me, just sort of a regular American person um, wanting to be happy all the time and never suffer, and despite pursuing happiness all day every day and trying to avoid suffering all day every day, um, and then in dreams at night probably pursuing the same thing, I wasn't succeeding in avoiding suffering or always being happy. And um, actually, my life had angst in it, as all of our lives do. Um, You know, now I'm thinking of the word dukkha, which is translated as suffering, but actually is more like baked-in insufficiency of life.
0: So let me just stop you right there. So dukkha is an ancient word in the Pali language, the language of the Buddha, which means, which is translated now as suffering, but the Buddha's principal pronouncement was life is suffering, which is I think widely agreed now among the experts to be kind of a mistranslation yeah. because he wasn't saying that life is like having your, having your innards pecked out by crows. He was saying that life is inherently unsatisfying if you're always latching onto things that will not last. Uh,
1: that's yeah, one problem, and also um, trying to avoid uh, the things that we don't like. So uh, there's a famous Zen saying: um, "Life, uh, enlightenment is easy for those who have no preferences." <laughs> The problem is, of course, we have serious preferences, (laughs) and um, we keep uh, putting what we prefer sort of as an overlay on top of what actually is. So um, that turns out to be uh, a source of suffering.
0: You are very open and honest in, in, in I think, a courageous way about your childhood. You say, uh, and this is a quote from the book, Throughout my childhood, I felt lonely, sad, and not very safe. I used to cry for no apparent reason, and I was just waiting to graduate high school and leave home. The underlying tone of that time was a melancholic longing, though I didn't even know for what. Yeah. What was going on?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I think what we were just describing was really at the root of it, and I don't think I'm alone in having felt that way. Um, And so there are lots of... uh, I mean, each person's uh, childhood is unique. And yet, we can all relate to some of those statements, I think. So um, I I think at the root of it, I wasn't being shown how to navigate life uh, in in a, a skillful way. And my parents weren't shown that either. Nobody was teaching it in school. And so I wasn't learning it. And so it turns out I was being pretty bad at it. Uh, what I came later to learn now, fast forward to um, when I spent a lot of time on the cushion and, you know, had a chance to watch what my mind does, I could see um, I was um, my own movie producer and writer, was starring in my own movie, and I wasn't even aware of that. S- and I hadn't learned how to do it well. So why is it a surprise that the movie is turning out badly?
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Did you, at what point did you start meditating?
1: Well, it seemed like a good idea to me when I was living in the country and in, uh, gosh, I think I was like 20 years old. So fresh out of college. Yeah. I didn't even graduate college. I left college because it was, I felt like I didn't like the way they were teaching things. I ended up getting my degree after having my kids. Uh, and then my master's as well. But, uh, so anyway, in your
0: pre-Lama days, even though you were doing some meditating, you had a pretty conventional life. Got married, had kids in some ways.
1: Yeah, although homesteading in the country is yes. not something everyone no, does. No, no, you no, know, no. I don't know how many goat owners there are in this country, but I think <laughs> it's a small demographic.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> this podcast is actually entirely targeted to goat owners.
1: Okay, so you didn't want a lot of listeners. no, okay. no no, no, okay, you've succeeded. <laughs> I'm actually thinking about getting a couple of goats again.
0: <laughs> well, you live in the country still?
1: I live in the country again <laughs> and very happy to. It's um, my natural habitat. <laughs>
0: So you, you you dropped out of school, you went, you were homesteading for a while, um, and that was the unconventional part of it, But uh, and, and you were also meditating, um, but you also got married and had some kids. And so this is all in the pre... Yes, yeah, so and not,
1: I'm not speaking of go kids at that point. That, right, the, okay. These
0: are human children, human, and you... three of them. This is pre... Three of them. So mm-hmm. the, and this is pre... Even though you were meditating, this is pre Lama days. It was
1: pre-instruction. So I really had the feeling, I must be doing a terrible job at this. And um I probably was, but nevertheless, when I gave up because I thought, it, you know, I'm not doing myself any good here, that's when uh five years passed and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm uh, not doing with my life what I need to be doing. And I'm really off course. I, it was with the wrong people, doing the wrong stuff, and that kind of thing, and living in the wrong place. And I just suddenly sort of kind of came to and and said, no, 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 this is not my path in life. This is not the life that I need to live. Mm. Everybody's got their own, you know, and I could just feel I'm off track. And so I decided I have to resume meditating because I realized, hmm. So every day I was not reacting to the things on the outside for at least those 15 minutes. It was 15 minute meditations at the time. And that allowed me to just um, kind of like that eight ball with the, the message bubbling up. Mm-hmm. I the was magic there. Eight ball. Yeah. <laughs> I was there to see it. Mm-hmm. I was there to hear it. Um, and so all the thousands of decisions I was making then throughout my day was, were that much more on track because of having tuned into myself, push the reset button, whatever you want to say. Uh, And so I thought, okay, well, so it turns out meditation is important to do, even if it's bad meditation. But imagine if I did good meditation. So I'd taken piano as a kid, and I knew that if you go to a teacher for lessons who knows how to do what you're trying to do, your chances of doing it better are pretty good. So I applied that same logic to meditation. So then I thought, okay, I'm just going to um, you know, sort of sound the note out there in the world. I want to find my teacher. And so I just sort of silently created that aspiration. And I was very clear about, you know, I, I want somebody who's really accomplished. I want somebody who also knows the scholarly tradition behind it, who's good at the teaching process, um, and so on and so forth. And um, I, I had a pretty good clear list, but I forgot one thing. I forgot to require must speak English. <laughs> so I met Tuku Sangak Rinpoche, my teacher.
0: Say that name again.
1: You didn't catch that the first time. No, one? I didn't. Huh. Neither did I. <laughs> I couldn't say it for a long time. Tuku Sangak Rinpoche.
0: And Tulku t- 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 or?
1: Tuku means a reincarnated Lama.
0: Okay. And so that's like the title or yeah. one of the titles.
1: One of the titles. And then Sangak is his actual name. And then Rinpoche is also a title meaning sort of like High Lama is, I think, how people tend to refer to it here.
0: Master teacher.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so you met him.
1: I met him and didn't realize he was the one I was looking for at first. (laughs) Um, So it wasn't until I met him again uh, when he came to my house (laughs) to teach somebody else, and I was just sort of hosting them, um, that's when... Uh, I, I got to sit in on some of the teachings and then some more, and, you know, it was kind of working out. And somewhere along the line, I realized, oh, my gosh, I can feel that, you know, just kind of this knowing this is my teacher.
0: I have a million more questions about the teacher, but just to, just situate me chronologically here. How long ago was this? You, you had married and divorced and had three children, and mm-hmm. uh, were they grown? What was going on in your life? Yeah,
1: so I married, had the three children, and then got divorced in that order. <laughs> Did I get that wrong? Yeah, I probably did. Conventional in that way. Okay. (laughs) And um, let's see. I must have been somewhere around, uh, gosh, late 30s when I met him. I'm trying to remember exactly the year. It was uh, 1994 when I met him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was it. Um, So, that, yeah, 1994. And so, That was preceded, though, by my already having sort of, as I said, sort of put out the call in a sense, and I I was now setting my sights on finding a teacher. And I I sort of said, I don't care what flavor as far as uh, what lineage or tradition they came from. I didn't even specify Buddhist, but I just found myself um, gravitating to Buddhism. And I started with the ver- my very first uh, Buddhist retreat I ever went to, or meditation retreat, where I finally got some instruction, was taught by Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein.
0: The familiar names, I hope, to our listeners, Sharon Salzberg, a recent guest on the podcast, and Joseph Goldstein, a future guest, and also my meditation teacher. <laughs> so
1: um, I, uh, Theravada really appealed to me. and
0: That's the school in which they teach, which is the kind of the old school Buddhism.
1: Yes, uh, and the, the, so the first uh, one that uh, the Buddha uh, laid out for his students. So uh, that did appeal to me, and I was doing daily meditations already, um, but then I uh, did it according to their instructions. And uh, I did that for a while, but it didn't quite feel, you know, at this point I was needing to sort of try things on uh, for size. How does this feel for me? Because this is a very personal thing, and no one uh, lineage or path is going to be right for everybody. And even the Buddha laid out these different uh, lineages and so on, and there were sub-lineages and so on and so forth, because we're all different. So I tried that, and um, it was, like, good, but I wasn't sure it was, you know, just absolutely hitting the spot for me. I then studied Zen with a, a Roshi um, that's a uh, like an abbot for a monastery, uh, and he was American. He spoke English, thank goodness. However, he was not going to be my teacher, and Zen wasn't hitting the spot for me. Uh, I actually preferred uh, Theravada to Zen. But then um, I, uh, a friend who lived nearby invited an American lama from the Tibetan tradition, which is Vajrayana, to her house, and he began talking about that tradition, and I, I thought, oh, this is this is really interesting. I think this feels more right to me, but I'd better road test these methods and see for myself how that feels. So I was um, doing what's known as the preliminary practices, which is a set of five practices, and it's uh, kind of fairly foundational within Tibetan Buddhism. I was doing that on retreat at this American Lama's uh, retreat when uh, I was just about to get to practice number three, uh, you sort of go in a progression, when uh, Tuku Sangak Rinpoche dropped into this center in the middle of the desert in um, New Mexico to teach Uh, teachings on Vajrasattva, which was the third in the progression, that was the next thing I was coming to, just so happened. Um, So he comes in from nowhere and is teaching the next thing I'm about to do, and I didn't get yet that that was my teacher. (laughs) I didn't catch on. So it wasn't until he came to my house to teach that American Lama that I was like, oh, wait, this is my
0: teacher. (laughs) What was it about me? You know, you couldn't even speak the same language. Why did you feel like this is my teacher? Yeah,
1: well, recognition is a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, although the Lama-student relationship is very different from, uh, you know, meeting your spouse, um, there's still this sort of just recognition moment when you go, oh, this is, you know, the, the person for me. So it's interesting. Is it is a very intimate relationship, but not at all uh, romantic. It's uh, a relationship that actually Westerners... I didn't have any precedent for as a you, Westerner.
0: You say in the book, more, more profound and intimate than a romantic relationship, more enduring than familial ones.
1: Well, yeah, if you believe in reincarnation, that can be the case. Yeah.
0: yeah actually, actually, you. <laughs> I'll pull up another quote from you just to pull, play off that. As Rinpoche knew, this is your teacher, as he knew from the beginning and I came to know much later, our relationship had begun lifetimes ago and will no doubt go into future ones why do you why do you believe that <laughs>
1: uh, again sometimes there are things you come to just know and as I've spent more time in meditation uh, sort of you know quieting my distraction to the point where I can just know more things um, that's one of the things I've just known the odd thing is though I remember as a kid on the playground talking with my best friend and we were like So what animals were you in past lives? And we never heard of reincarnation. So I don't know why. I I may just be inclined to think that way. I I can't really say. Uh, But for me, it's uh, not something that I need to wait until science can prove it, because that's going to be a tough one. (laughs) But um, it's something that I feel I just know.
0: But would you call that faith then? But not, you would, I would, I'll put words in your mouth and then you tell me how wrong I am. (laughs) Um, Faith, but not blind faith in your view.
1: I'm glad you made that distinction because uh, for me, it's not blind faith. Faith is a funny word, especially for Westerners, because when people say in English, have faith, they generally mean um, give up having proof. (laughs) You know, so uh, and and go with blind faith is kind of the parenthetical implication. Um, so I'm not comfortable with blind faith, uh, and that wasn't what I was raised with, even in a Jewish household. Uh, to have blind faith, we had these rousing dinner table debates that you read about in the book, and they were lots of fun. Uh, but certainly, nobody was expected to take anything on blind faith.
0: But 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 so then how? Because I would imagine. There wasn't like some sort of empirical proof offered up to you in your meditation practice. How did you arrive at this sort of bone level knowing that you mm-hmm. describe?
1: Mm-hmm. So something that I'd uh, come to earlier when I was studying uh, Jung's work, Carl Jung, uh, when I was uh, in my master's program.
0: We should, we completely left that part of your biography out that you were you're a therapist. Uh,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, so as I was studying we're, Jung.
0: Pr- proving that I'm a terrible podcast host, but carry on. Uh, I think you're doing great. Thank you. Thank you for that reassurance. (laughs) Anyway, I have faith in you. Thank you. Uh, Blind faith
1: in this case. No, no, I've had some evidence. (laughs) Anyway, um, so Jung uh, was an interesting balance of objective, um, uh, rigorous scientific study. He did some wonderful studies on how the brain works on association. Um, But then he also... Um, gave credence to inner experience. And he did his own three-year retreat, for example, and spent a lot of time um, by himself and um, looked deeply into his subjective experience. Um, And the um, scientists involved with the studies with the Dalai Lama in Mind and Life uh, were asked to— The Mind
0: and Life Foundation, which is— uh, you were involved with, a, if I understand, uh, which is basically a, a consortium of scientists who work with the Dalai Lama to research the imp- the impact of contemplative practices on the mind and the brain.
1: That's right. And uh, at one point, um, the scientists were sort of cajoled into, well, there was a whole debate first about uh, objective exploration of truth and subjective uh, exploration of truth. And the scientists were, you know, trained to be very leery of subjective experience. And they were saying, how can you trust it? And then the Dalai Lama and some from his end of things were saying, well, if your mind is trained to be more stable, then um, what you learn from subjective investigation can be more trustworthy.
0: So that's what happened with you vis-a-vis. And I found
1: that to be the case in my experience.
0: But so does it – I'm just trying to get a sense of this, that you – in your meditation, can you see and and re- recall interactions between you and your teacher in past lives, or see f- for in, into the future um, to get a sense of subsequent lives? Or is it a little? I'm bit not m- that good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what is my the, teacher's better? <laughs> I would imagine. Um, yeah. So what is the? I'm just trying to get a sense of what would take somebody from with your background and bring you to the point where i I would imagine if i had tapped you on the shoulder when you were 25 and said to you hey you're gonna meet this guy who you're gonna arrive at the conclusion you've been friends with for several lifetimes and will continue to be in future lifetimes you might have rolled your eyes maybe maybe that wasn't the type of thing you
1: i would yeah i kind of shrugged my shoulders i who knows i i have no idea you know that sounds a little you know out there
0: (laughs) so what then (laughs) what I'm just trying to, uh, given my mindset, trying to understand what what in your meditation experience would give you the confidence that this is true.
1: I've had enough experience of just knowing something and then having that be proven out in Mm -hmm. objective reality that I've begun to be able to trust that more and so i would I would say that's one way that I uh, felt I could trust that. Another is um just reading accounts of uh, and and hearing accounts of uh, people who have remembered very specific things about uh, a previous life, particularly when they had a sudden death uh, at a young age. And for some reason, it, it remained more clear in their minds. And then for these trained Tibetan masters, such as my teacher and and many others, there are written historical accounts of their remembering very specific things about uh, future lives that they predicted and then came to pass, past lives uh, that then played out in the one that they were uh, then incarnate in and, and writing, but also modern accounts. So those sort of gave me a little boost in confidence that this is a possibility.
0: It's interesting because for people like me, you know, skeptics, that the reincarnation is such a barrier in in terms of embracing Tibetan teachings mm-hmm. because it just, even though I mean, I'm, I find it reassuring to be sitting across from a clearly sane individual who's talking about it in lucid ways.
1: Clearly, you don't know me. <laughs> well, there you go. Maybe I jumped <laughs> to conclusions. Yeah, yeah,
0: but notwithstanding that, I have seen no evidence for it and have a hard time – have a hard time with it.
1: Yeah. And so there are only little bits of other pieces of evidence as far as objective uh, experience that we can point to. And so I've sort of looked at all of those and they all sort of indicate in that direction. But no, we can't say that we've proven in objective form, you know, scientifically – that there is reincarnation. There begin to be very few explanations for how a child can know exactly uh, what household they used to uh, be in in their last lifetime and the names of their parents and uh, what their name was and how they died and so on. Uh, and there are enough accounts of that that, you know, I'm not sure how else to explain it. Maybe there's some far-fetched explanation, but that begins to sound more far-fetched than than simply saying, okay, well, maybe uh, awareness doesn't die when the body dies. And if that's the case, then maybe it can inhabit another body. And maybe that's no more far-fetched than what we'd have to dream up to explain what I just mentioned about the child.
0: Yeah, I think for somebody like me, the only reasonable stance is, you know, Respectful agnosticism, Mm -hmm. curiosity and interest. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, setting that aside, um, your relationship with this teacher was clearly transformative. Absolutely. You you dove in headlong.
1: Yeah, I did. Um, As I say a few times in the book, uh, do I have something better to pursue than enlightenment? I don't know what that would be. And the other thing is, even from the beginning... I was uh, just trying these things on for size, uh, testing them out for myself, being my own scientist, if you will. And uh, I felt better and better. I was happier and happier. I was uh, able to handle challenges in life better and better um, and was finding myself to be a lot more steady, less of a chicken running around with his head cut off, more, more and more and more on track. Um, and really, you know i I have challenges in life, just like anybody else, and um I was finding I was doing much better, and I have to say again, just you know sort of my steady state level of happiness way more than ten percent happier <laughs> gotta say,
0: so uh, what does that mean? I'm doing it wrong, I'm doing I'm in the wrong school, I'm not doing enough meditation, live Why? longer for live one longer, thing, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> And, um, you know, anytime you can have a chance to do the total immersion of a retreat, even for a weekend, it's kind of like learning a foreign language, such as Tibetan, <laughs> having total immersion once in a while. not all the time. I, didn't, I never lived in Tibet. So you don't have to do that. It, it can be daily practice with some total immersion here and there. Because if you're changing the habits of your mind and trying to... Uh, you know, get your mind off of the these pathways and onto those pathways, then uh, total immersion is an important way to go because then, you, you know, as with learning Spanish, let's say, if you stop speaking English and you don't allow yourself to speak any English and you're only surrounded by Spanish, you just leap ahead.
0: So, I, f- I fully agree. I mean, I, I try to do a 10-day retreat every year, and um, uh, I, while I'm obviously going to be... Um, stuck with the whole ten percent happier thing the rest of my life. Um, I believe it compounds annually, and um, <laughs> as like any good as any good investment does. Um, so I'm, I'm if you keep investing. Yeah. Yes, I also believe that I've made ten percent happier up completely. So I don't. I'm not married to it in any way. I pulled it out of my. You know what? Um, so uh, back to you though. You. Uh, you started doing long retreats, mm-hmm. and and also learning Tibetan, which allowed you to communicate directly with your teacher. Um, what? How long did it take for you to earn the title of Lama? And how big a deal was that? I mean, it seems to me like a very big deal. Uh,
1: yeah, I actually I um, debated with him about that. I. I, it, for me, wild horses weren't going to stop me from pursuing this. I was going to do these long retreats because I was feeling better and I was loving uh, studying and practicing this stuff uh, and seeing results. Um, so that's why I was doing it. He said, I, when you finish the traditional course of practice for a three-year retreat, I am going to give you the llama title. And I said, well, I don't need the Lama title. I just want to do these practices. And he's like, no, 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 no. They will call you Lama Tsomo. <laughs> and, I, you know, after a certain point, I couldn't keep arguing with him. Uh, you know, he was my teacher, and that's what he wanted to do. Uh, now, Tsomo was my refuge name from that first um, time with uh, teachings with him when, he was, when I was sitting in on his teachings uh, of the uh, American Lama.
0: I don't know what a refuge name means.
1: Uh, so there was a refuge ceremony uh, where I uh, took refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the Three Jewels, as they're called. Um, the and, Buddha, his
0: teachings, and the community of of, uh, of people pursuing those teachings. Exactly.
1: And um, so uh, Rinpoche did that ceremony, and in that ceremony, he gave me the name Sangak Tsomo. And it, so he was giving me part of his name, Sangak. And then adding TsoMo. He, actually, the whole thing was Sangak Yeshe TsoMo, which you don't have to say back to me or spell. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so he took TsoMo and then added Lama to it, and that's what he wanted people to call me. So over the course of years, I couldn't do three uh, three years, three months, and three days, which is the traditional three year retreat, all at once, because I did have kids who were mostly grown. Um. And I had responsibilities and so on. I just couldn't take it all at once. But I did three months at a time quite often and two-month retreats and one-month retreats. And so uh, I put it all together. And he taught me all the levels. And I did the required amount of practice for all of those.
0: I want to give people a sense of what these practices are. I think most of the people, and I, I could be wrong about this, but most of the people who meditate these days are doing one of two things. Either they're doing a sort of uh, uh, Vedic meditation, TM or something along those lines, where they're using a mantra, a word silently repeated in the mind to settle the mind, or they're doing um, mindfulness um which is either derived from Buddhism or firmly in Buddhism, but basic mindfulness meditation where you're just uh, aware of the breath as it comes in and goes out, and when you get lost, you start again. Tibetan Buddhism: the practices includes both mantras and and this sort of breath awareness, yeah. but get into some pretty far out stuff. So let me ask you: what? And this is this is uh, Vajrayana is the name of this school of Buddhism. You describe a practice, which you call the Tibetan nose blow. What is that?
1: Yes. Uh, Well, it is not just for people with bad sinuses like myself. Um, It is um, a practice that uh, helps you jumpstart your meditation. So many people, uh, let's say they do 20 minutes of meditation. Um, They get to the last five or 10 minutes, and that's when it really gets good. They've really settled in. And they're sort of like, how can I get to that part from the beginning? And the answer is the Tibetan nose blow. It's known as lung Rosel in Tibetan, which means basically clearing the stale winds is the way it's generally mm-hmm. uh, translated. Um, so you work with um, the uh, energy in your body and your breath and visualization. And the Tibetans work with visualization a lot. And it turns out, uh, I I was really excited to read uh, The Case for Mental Imagery by Stephen Cosselin. I don't know if you've read that. No. Um, But at Harvard, he conducted a lot of studies uh, looking at exactly what the brain does when you're visualizing something as opposed to seeing the actual thing in front of you, and it turns out it behaves pretty much the same. It lights up in the same patterns. So the Tibetans uh, took full advantage of that despite not having fMRI uh, technology, and um, they were able to use um, visualization for us to set up just the perfect experiences for ourselves to um, create a lot of uh, deep transformation in the brain and the mind. So um, this is a very simple practice Uh, once you see it done. It's tough to describe uh, you know, in audio form. And it, writing about it in the book doesn't really help either. But oh, you have
0: pictures in the book. doesn't make it easier to, to understand. It's a
1: little easier. But actually, we have a video of it uh, on our website. Which is? Namchak.org.
0: N-A-M-C-H-A-K.org? Yes. Okay.
1: And um, so then you can just, you know, much easier. And, you know, it takes like 30 seconds or so to do it. And I have found that I've immediately gotten into well, a dropped in you put place. Put a
0: little more meat on the bone. What is it actually?
1: Okay. So you're um, forcefully expelling um, air out of one nostril and then the other alternately a few times, and then both together. And while you're doing that, you're visualizing the sort of distractedness in the form of the three categories of negative emotions, or neurotic emotions, afflicted emotions, whatever you want to call them. Um, so, uh, ignorance, laziness, stupor, none of us have that first thing in the morning, but, (laughs) you know, should it happen, that that's one. And then the whole category of sort of clinging, desire, addiction, all of that is another category. And then a third one is aversion or aggression or competitiveness. Yeah. Uh, you know, usually Westerners don't identify with that one, so I tend not (laughs) to use that as much, but Yeah. You know, that too would be in that category. Worry is also, in the fear is in that category as well. So if you just think about the fact that we're either trying to pull stuff to us that we want or push away stuff we don't want, and we're occupying ourselves with that all the time. Imagine if we could just part the clouds of that effort for a little bit. Wouldn't that be nice? And and that's what this practice helps us to do. And so then we can sit in clear, calm uh, aware meditation right away.
0: whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I'm constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. We would need hours and hours and hours to get into all of the practices you've done, but let's just... Pick something else uh, just just so people get a sense of actually what you're doing on the cushion. G- give mm-hmm. us a sense of some uh, other practices that you uh, that you d- did and do.
1: Well, this is the thing I love about Vajrayana is there's lots of them. And so there's a practice for any occasion.
0: And they're pretty psychedelic. Uh, some of them are pretty some of psychedelic. It, well, yeah.
1: they use visualization. Yeah. And uh, they use archetypes uh, in the form of archetypal image, archetypal sound as in mantra. Um, and archetypes uh, it, are very you know deep powerful transformative um, catalysts and so they are extremely skilled at using them and that was something that I was sort of marveling at as I was sitting there in one of my three-month retreats I was like my god this is so finely honed and highly developed and efficient how, how could it be that they dreamed this up and I thought well wait a second Freud and Jung lived how long ago? And the Buddha and the Tibetan masters lived how long ago? They've had a lot more time to develop all this.
0: So what does it mean? You're visualizing a deity or, an, or something like that? Sometimes. And, yeah.
1: Sometimes not. Uh, uh, so here's one that isn't visualizing a deity. What I like about Vajrayana is it meets us where we're at. So, we normally visualize somebody and imagine an internal conversation with them. We do that all the time, mm-hmm. every day. So, Vajrayana is attempting to take what we're already doing and just turn it toward a much more positive direction. Uh, and they're quite aware. A, a different way. movie. It, yeah. And make a movie that's closer to how it really is. And the closer we are uh, to real reality, the happier we're going to be. The farther we are from how, th- the farther our movie is from what actually is going on, the more we're going to suffer. So, you know, basically the Buddha, right from the start, was trying to help us to get closer to reality as it actually
0: is. And you were going to describe one of these practices?
1: Yeah, so one that's uh, still early on and I uh, teach in the book is Donglin. And Dong Lin is uh, also uses visualization, and it kind of riffs off this same idea of imagining somebody and having an interaction with them. Uh, in this case, what you're doing though is uh, expanding your capacity for compassion. So I don't know where you are with your practice, um, but um, the, the teachers I've worked with, including Sharon and uh, Joseph. Um, point out that we really uh, need to pursue wisdom and compassion together. And all of the the great bodhisattvas, and I include people like Martin Luther King among them, uh, for example, uh, had both a a great measure of wisdom and a great measure of compassion, and that was uh, what caused them to be a powerful force for the good.
0: I don't want you to derail you too much before you describe Tonglen, but define bodhisattva.
1: Uh, so it literally means, um, one who has a mind of awakening, I guess I would say, an awakened mind, uh, Bodhi being awakened. Um, so (laughs) we're all kind of dreaming our way through life and these people are a lot more awake than we are. And therefore they're able to be a lot more effective in, um, helping others. And that's what they're motivated to do. It's just kind of what they're about. Um, So Dong Lin is for those of us baby bodhisattvas who would like to do some good in the world and get a little distracted by our own stuff and uh, maybe don't have such a strong capacity for compassion. And for us Westerners in particular, we have to start with ourselves because I don't think we're so compassionate toward ourselves. I don't think we really like ourselves very much or feel like we're worthy of compassion. And so we need to start there. But the basic essence of the practice um, is that uh, you imagine somebody who's suffering, and you can just read about uh, somebody uh, on the news who's suffering terribly, and you're just moved by that, and so you want to do that for them. And again, you use breath and visualization. So you imagine that suffering person in front of you, and uh, you see their suffering face. You don't have to get perfect for the visualization. That's not important. It's what you're feeling that's most important. Um, And so now you use the breath to really make it real, and you breathe in their suffering into your heart, which is a bit of an act of courage. But if you're feeling moved by compassion, you just want to take away their suffering and replace it with happiness. So you breathe in their suffering, and you imagine these sort of dense, thick, dark clouds of the suffering. And you breathe not their actual facts of their experience, but the suffering itself into your heart. And then you breathe out um these bright white clouds into them, and you see their face changing to a smile, so that's the essence of the practice, but you don't just uh, uh, do that for the ones who are your favorite people. You step it out until it's uh, eventually people you don't know, the person at the checkout counter, you know a- anybody and everybody until you know finally it's really quite big, and it's known as one of the four boundless qualities or the four immeasurables. And it, it's not very boundless if we stick with our favorite people, and we're not going to exercise that muscle of compassion and strengthen it if we don't step it out uh, to everybody. But don't start with your ex, for example, right <laughs> away. You, you know, just exercise the muscle a little bit more.
0: <laughs> I did. D- um, there is some a very similar practice in, in uh, that's taught in in um, Tara or insight meditation traditions Uh, so Sharon Salzberg who was on the show recently uh, as a major proponent of what's called loving kindness meditation is actually quite similar to what you described and and Mm -hmm. despite my initial um, uh, uh, repulsion at the description of it because it seems so sappy um, I do it every day and I find it very useful No, I'm not great at it but Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the point
1: well if you do it every day you'll get better
0: that is the point
1: Every Absolutely. day is the point, yeah.
0: <laughs> and getting better is the point as opposed to yes. being perfect. I mean, I don't know yes. if that's possible, which leads me to my question about in, enlightenment. Um mm-hmm. You talked about it before. In fact, you describe in the book uh, some, and this is a quote from the book, some practitioners have even transformed their bodies out of the material realm altogether with rainbow-colored light streaming out of their empty clothes as they attain complete enlightenment. Uh, and later you mentioned that some of these people leave behind nothing but hair and nails. Mm-hmm. Uh, any evidence for this?
1: Yes. Witness- really? Witnesses. Yeah.
0: And you consume this without any skepticism. There's not because to me, you know, it's a little bit really. I know, like, it really? took me a while. Yeah, okay. it
1: did take me a while. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I I don't want you to feel like I'm just sort of I'm a gullible person. Quite the contrary. My dad was into science. I was raised with science. I like to see evidence.
0: Well, let me just say, in your defense, let me just say in your defense, I, I uh, have met you one time before. And anybody, if, if if our listeners and viewers were in the room with you, they would know you, are, you give off nothing of being a gullible person in person. So that's why you're interesting to me because you clearly are a skeptical person. And yet yeah. you talk about this stuff. Without really any, without any caveats, without you present it as as facts, and so I am very interested in how somebody like you gets to the point where you can just talk about this as if you are talking about, yeah, I used to own goats, <laughs> uh huh,
1: and maybe will again,
0: and maybe will again.
1: Um, so my teacher is a sane person, and he's seen it. Uh, I met one lama in Tibet and his son, and that lama. Um, When he uh, died, he sat in Tukdam, which I'm sure you've heard about. The
0: clear white after death, the clear light after death or something?
1: Yeah, which is not actually the uh, direct translation of that term. But anyway, um, the point is that he was sitting up and his skin was as though he wasn't dead. And it went on and on for, I think it was 25 days. And his body shrank. He didn't do the full rainbow body that I that you uh, read from my book. But he uh, uh, came down to the size of about eight inches high.
0: So how would you advise somebody and like many me? Many
1: people saw it and I, I know these people. I was into that, I met them, you know, they're sane. <laughs> um they, you know, kind of measured, you know, and so on. I saw a picture. Um so that's one. My teacher met a woman who th- that sort of thing happened to. And you know, so I asked my teacher, well, how do you explain this? It, how does it work? This, these were the questions I kept asking him. How does it work? And he said um, they, uh, are, they were so enlightened to the point where they just cleared away all karma and the body is made from karma so there wasn't anything to sustain the substance,
0: except for the hair and the nails. Apparently,
1: well, because those aren't actually alive anymore; they're just evidence oh, left behind I see. And the clothes. You know.
0: So, how would you advise somebody like me to deal with this? Just, just to, just to keep a, an attitude of openness.
1: I, I would say uh, openness with asking lots of questions, which you seem to be doing very well, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> you know investigating because that's what I had to do I had to you know read about these all these different accounts um and you know I had to know some people who actually witnessed it I happened to see uh the remains of one master myself and so all of these things and it you know it was months later no smell I you know it's a bit very hard to explain away with conventional science <laughs>
0: i've had I've had these very similar discussions um uh, with my teacher who we, the aforementioned Joseph Goldstein, who um talks about uh, psychic powers and things like that where we've had long arguments about this so um arguments he, well arguments I use that term debates De, maybe debates and a lot of me making fun of him um, and him being good natured about it. Uh, <laughs> So I mean you're you're not you're you're not unique in um, I'm I'm not picking on you in some unique way as I guess my point, um, <laughs> but I just find it interesting because the, it's it appears it, his his argument is that is that you should uh, you should employ what he calls don't know mind, like that's a good way maybe to say. it's true
1: yeah uh, I mean kids learn a lot because they don't uh, snap to judgment they don't go with what they already know they keep their blinders way open. Um, And I I think as we get older, we tend to learn less because we tend to decide what's what, and that makes less room for learning. So I try to sort of work against time (laughs) and um, try to keep the blinders open. But I still want to know, well, how does it work? And, you know, what evidence is there? Because I still like evidence, too. And that's why happened to know some of those things I mentioned because I was busy
0: investigating. You, you said before that you, you said, do I have anything better to do than pursue enlightenment? That mm-hmm. was the kind of the th- question you asked yourself at the beginning of your experience with Vajrayana with the, and, and your relationship with your teacher. Yeah. How do you define enlightenment and do you think you're getting close?
1: Uh, uh, let's see. So I would define enlightenment uh, the way... I've understood it, uh, which seems just so clean uh, from my teacher. Uh, The term in Tibetan is sanje, which means um, clearing away and maturing or bringing forth. So if we all basically come from this uh, source of everything and that's pure, then our essence is pure. And so what's all the excitement about? We're already there in a way. But we happen to be really... um, covered over with a lot of distraction and mental habits that uh, make it so that we can't even see that, much less live from that. So if we can clear all of that away 100 percent, so that's the clearing way, and we can bring forward our true nature to its fullest extent, um, which is the second part of that word, that is the definition of enlightenment for me. That works for me.
0: And so you feel like you're progressing along that path.
1: I'm progressing. I am Nowhere near there.
0: (laughs) And are there markers?
1: Um, You know, we don't look at that, really. I I can say I've had, uh, how can I put it, experiences where the clouds part and I'm able to see more clearly the true nature of my mind and the true nature of how things are. And then I go back to whatever habitual level of distraction I'm at at the moment. (laughs) So it's kind of like that. But the more the clouds open and the more I give them a chance to through you know, doing these practices, uh, whichever, you know, practice it is, meditation practice, um, then it's sort of like uh, that habit gets created more and more. And I begin to believe in that experience more and more, uh, although that experience is really my subjective reality and experience. But nevertheless, it's something that I've been able to replicate it again and again. When I first had uh, sort of moments of uh, epiphany, uh, the first one I had was when I was in college, and it actually lasted for quite some time. Yeah, you
0: describe it in the book. You say it lasted like a half hour. Uh,
1: Well, yeah, but then I could still tune into it any time, and I did so many times a day for years afterwards. But I didn't do formal meditation, and I didn't have instruction. I didn't know what it was. And the first person to really explain what was going on was my teacher, uh, and that was one of the moments when I was like, "Oh, this is my teacher."
0: <laughs> so, when the clouds part, yeah. what do you see?
1: Well, I don't know. Maybe I should take my cue from the Buddha when they, you know, after he reached full enlightenment in his case, uh, his first student, his early students said, "Well, describe it for us." He fell silent, because it's uh, words are uh, carry concepts. That's what words are, really. Um, and any words I use to describe it aren't it, because it's beyond, you know, conceptualizing. So uh, I'm going to be at a bit of a loss here. I figure if the Buddha was at a loss for words, <laughs> you know,
0: <laughs> you're a good cup. Yeah,
1: I yeah, <laughs> I have an excuse. Um. I, Hmm, how would I describe it? I would say that uh, things um, seem less solid and rigid, and I feel less solid and rigid. And um there's a, a, a deep feeling of uh, a just sort of abiding state of love and satisfaction, and just joy, I guess I would say
0: that's there when the clearing away happens.
1: There's joy and there's, uh, I don't know, a quality of brightness uh, and clarity. Uh, Those are some words that I'm throwing at it. Uh, You know, if I'm doing a word collage, it's sort of (laughs) the best I can do to describe
0: it. Pretty good. You also talk about, in the book, about the ocean, that we tend to identify ourselves as one wave in the ocean but yeah. and that's the source of our unhappiness but we'd be much happier if we just identified with the ocean which makes sense to me intellectually i just don't understand how you do that how you make that switch because i'm still mm-hmm. identifying as as dan
1: ah uh, well so when i identify with the whole ocean and that is very much a part of these experiences i have when the clouds part um and I can do that more on a regular basis because I have the tools to do it now and I've, you know, trained my mind more and so on. Um, It doesn't disinclude the waves, right? The ocean includes all the waves, including the Dan wave and the Tsomo wave. Um, It's just way bigger than that. And there is the whole ocean uh, that we're all a part of. And I think that's a natural Way that I come to, because I don't like to be sappy either. That's a natural way I can come to love and compassion. Is you know, for all connected in that way, it's kind of like if I stub my toe, my whole body suffers. Right.
0: So here I'm in this funny position um, because I am deeply intrigued by descriptions of enlightenment that I hear from people like you and from my teachers and from what I read. I'm not sure however that it even exists i mean because i haven't ta- i haven't had it for myself and there's no scientific evidence so what is, I, I can't just it cl- would be blind faith on some level for me to just say that of course I, th- this is true and yet i want to spend a lot of my own time trying to experience this you said you wanted to talk about this a little bit before the podcast began you said um, yeah. that the jewish therapist and you uh, wanted to talk to me about this so what did you want to talk about
1: well, so uh you're a busy guy, mm-hmm. and you're spending two hours a day now meditating, yes, and when we talked before, you had just started that program, yeah
0: yeah, so you came to my office several months ago. Uh, I think it was I think it was I, I started doing two hours a day, maybe nine or ten months ago
1: yeah, uh, so I, can, I I think it was last May when mm-hmm. I came to your office yeah. um and I could see that you know there was this burning. Desire or longing, I would say, uh, for something. So, what is it that you're really wanting? What's your bottom line? I,
0: you know, that's part of the conundrum. Is I don't know that I can describe it. I don't know that I can articulate it. It's when I started to work on Ten Percent Happier. People would ask me, like, "Why are you doing this? I mean, what's what has overtaken you?" And i I had a lo- I had a lot of trouble articulating it until I was finished writing the book. Um and so now I'm in the process of writing another book about the the sort of deep end of the pool in meditation what's beyond 10% and I can't articulate it and yes I and yet I've sort of arranged my life around um going for it.
1: Okay, but I'm not asking you to articulate um enlightenment. What I'm asking you to articulate and this may be equally difficult is what is the the longing that's impelling you?
0: Oh, I see. Oh, I think it's become any amount of meditation shows you how um, habitual mm, me centered thinking is, uh, and 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 um, being driven by desire and aversion is a recipe for unhappiness. And so you can't unsee that. <laughs> that's that's the answer that I can articulate.
1: And, and so you just want to be rid of as much of that as possible. Is that the idea?
0: Well, I certainly have faith that one can sand those da- those edges down, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's pretty good evidence, not only experiential but scientific, that 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 uh, that um, meditation has a salutary effect physiologically and psychologically. So I'm I'm pretty confident that I'm not wasting my time and that the more I do, the better I'll get at it. So the, the math there is pretty obvious to me. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and the desire is there to get rid of it because the more you see it, the more it's like, ugh, yeah. let me get rid of
0: this. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, when you uh, – <laughs> my friend Judd Brewer, who is a neuroscientist, talks about the, the Skinner box, which is a yeah. – um, you know what it is because yeah. you're trained as a therapist, but our r- listeners may not. But basically, we put rats inside of a Skinner box, and um, uh, they, if they s- s- go to the wrong part of the box, they'll get an electric shock. Um, when you notice what it's like to have a mindless moment as opposed to a mindful moment, it just feels better to be mindful. Yeah. And so why – again, the math is pretty obvious. Why wouldn't you want to rack up as many mindful moments as possible in a finite lifetime? Um, so that that I think is is what's impelling me. I just don't know exactly what I'm shooting for because mm-hmm. I, I mean it's hard. I mean I can take other people's uh, definitions, but I, well, one thing I find compelling is um, you know we're going to die, and um, uh, every, everybody we know is going to die, mm-hmm. and um, I would like to be less scared of that.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a really good one to um, to motivate yourself with because it's the truth, and people like to forget it. But, you know, dying isn't something that happens to everybody else just. It also happens to us. And are we ready? Uh, and Tibetans are very much aware of that in the whole dying process. You know, they've delineated it ad infinitum. Uh, but um, getting back to the sort of uh, sappy, the idea of sappy loving kindness or sappy compassion, mm. it gets sappy when it's ego tinged. It can get sappy
0: because it's about you and how and, yeah,
1: Oh, and little... it, oh, there there you poor thing.
0: Oh, I see. I thought it was more like uh, well, a that's peacock compassion. thing. You know, where you're showing off how how uh, loving you are.
1: Well, that that could be also. With compassion it could be, you know, sort of turning to pity, which is known as the near enemy of compassion.
0: Yeah. yeah. Sharon talks about that.
1: Uh, right. And so that's um, the problem is it's uh, tainted by ego. So if there isn't ego involved in it, then there's just this automatic wanting to take away the suffering and replace it with happiness. Um, so, you know, that's why you practice. Uh, and then for love, uh, loving kindness, it can be, you know, sort of this sappy kind of sentimental, sentimentality is a near enemy of uh, loving kindness. And again, it's um, t- tainted by ego tinge, you know, uh, rather than just simply this expansive heart you know, and just feeling how we're all connected. And that's a wonderful feeling, you know, and that those four boundless qualities are ways of feeling connected. So it's one thing to see how uh, there's this one big ocean uh, that's all connected and we're all connected. And that's what uh, the mindful meditation can do. But uh, Dong Lin or Metta meditation, the loving kindness meditation, helps us to feel how we're connected. Mm-hmm. So it's another way in.
0: Yeah. No, I, I buy it. I, right. I, You know, when I talked about the sappiness of it, that was my initial um, problem. But mm-hmm. I'm over it. I just like to bring it. I, because I know that our, that many people who, who listen to a podcast hosted by me will probably also share my, mm-hmm. uh, pred, you know, sort of predilections, um, that I, I, I always want to introduce it with some level of skepticism because mm-hmm. otherwise people won't sure get past it to the good stuff
1: well that's right and i just wanted to sort of trace a pathway from here to there kind of thing uh it's you know kind of taking a rest with the ego involvement Mm -hmm. and just you know the simple uh feeling of connectedness in those two ways
0: so is is, it did i give you a full chance to explore the issue that you wanted to explore pretty much okay but,
1: you know, if we talked again, I could probably <laughs> pursue it more.
0: <laughs> well, then you should consider that an invitation to come back on the show next time you are in New York. Um, let me ask you this. I would be remiss if I did not ask this. Um, why is the Dalai Lama always smiling?
1: <laughs> the short answer. Read the book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Give me the longer answer. The longer I answer. I will recommend everybody read the book. Um, it's a very, very interesting book.
1: <laughs> so a slightly longer answer. Um He is somebody who has really mastered these methods. And uh, even before I had really done much meditating, I was so moved being in a large room full of people where he was present. And a lot of other people really moved too, just by his presence. And we were all sort of marveling. And this one guy said, "Uh, you know, what is it? We were all saying, what is it? And he said, you know, I think he's just how a human being can be Without all the stuff in the way. so I'm Clearing
0: th- forward and bringing forth.
1: Exactly. Clearing away and bringing forth. He's just done a lot of that using these methods, and it shows. So he's kind of a poster child for the methods.
0: You're not a bad poster child yourself. <laughs> Thanks. Really appreciate having you on Lama Tsomo. By the way, did it take take a while to get used to being called SOMO instead of the name you spent decades uh, Uh, identifying with?
1: A little bit, but not too long. And it's funny, now, you know, speaking of letting go of ego identification, I have two different names I I truly do identify or respond to. And it's loosened my ego identification in a way because I'll answer the phone and I won't know, am I Lama SOMO in this conversation (laughs) or Linda Prisker. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Let's see who it is. So that has been kind of a lightening up of the grasp of ego in that way.
0: Such a fascinating interview. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, as always, to the producers of the show, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohen, Sarah Amos, and Dan Silver. You can hit me on Twitter at Dan B. Harris anytime you like. If you liked the episode today and you want to hear more like it, you can subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and leave a review. Thank you for that. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know, kissing under the bridge of sighs guarantees eternal love because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. take off 15, discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit know. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week.